Welcome back, listeners, to Fantastic Voyage, the podcast about David Bowie. I'm Jesse. I'm Jesse's co-host, John. And we are picking up our conversation about David Bowie's 1969 album, Space Oddity, um, officially known as David Bowie, uh, but we're referring to it as Space Oddity. And we're going to kick off this episode by talking about the album cover, something we're going to maybe do about each album going forward. Uh, There's a couple album covers. What do you got there, John? Well, I've got this stupid 1972 copy where they were i guess it was at the height of ziggy they're really trying to capitalize on bowie finally taking off uh commercially so i've got this like glam rock cover where he looks like ziggy because he is ziggy and uh it's stupid i hate my cover i I only bought it because it was at a record convention for cheap i think i got it for like eight or nine bucks and it was like the cheapest i'd ever get the album so i just settled for this cover but you are holding in your hands a much nicer copy. It's actually not the original cover either, is it? No, this is the 2019 Tony Visconti mix. Actually, there's a there's a sleeve. I'll show hold it up to the camera that it fits in. And there's a cutout of the see, there's like the real cover. Okay. It fits inside this and it actually says space oddity instead of David Bowie. It's the 2019 yeah. mix. Uh, yeah, it's just like a smaller version. This there's a there's a blue outline around it. This is actually the most recent, or it was one of the last Bowie albums that I that I purchased. I didn't own it until like not too. It's only like a few months ago, actually. Um, yeah, I just I never got around to buying this one because uh, it's it's not really one of my. It's, it's not a, an album that I listen to a whole lot of. Um, but you know, I, I listened to it enough to own it. So I bought it and uh, I, I really like the 2019 uh, mix. It's uh, it's definitely got like, I find a lot of these, these remixed albums, like the Beatles are doing them. Uh, the bass and the low end. Yeah, out a lot. They just, absolutely. Yeah. It's it thumps <laughs> more. I mean, I don't really, I don't own the, this mix on, on vinyl. I don't own the mix, but all like you said, all these remixes that are coming out, I prefer to listen to them in my car because I have like a, I have a subwoofer in my trunk. Nothing crazy, just a nice little ten inch, but it, it packs more of a punch. Yeah, you know. I originally thought because one of the first ones that got this treatment was Sergeant Pepper, and I know Paul was involved in it, and I thought, uh, I see what's going on here. The bass is more prominent. <laughs> uh, oh yeah, the alive ones and Ringo, the drums thump more too. So right. I, yeah, I thought a drown George and John out. And... I see what's happening here, but. It, it seems to be a change the credits to McCartney Lennon instead of yeah. Lennon McCartney. He actually, uh, yeah, we, we won't get into to Paul right now, but, but uh, yeah, this not album to get too off track. The cover is what we're trying to talk about. Well, the, what the back what I, cover, I was just going to say, I am, uh, I'm not so jealous of the front cover uh, that you have. Cause the front cover to me on the original kind of is ugly. To, I mean, it's, it's more representative of, the era i mean david has a perm on the covers it's kind of neat that it just shows you what he looked like in that era but the cover's pretty plain and boring but the back cover i mean there's a lot going on here we've got what do we have you're holding it so yeah it's kind of similar to images in the respect that there's kind of representation of each song on on it there's Mm -hmm. some astronauts fighting over a flower um hermione farthingale is coming out of a cloud reaching down to a dead carp or something laying I guess, down i, I think, just have a picture here on my 
I just have a picture here on my, uh, I just opened it up on Discogs. There's the mountain, right? Well, yeah, that's... Memory of a, or not... From uh, the Free Cloud song, what's that song called again? Wild-eyed, Wild-eyed Boy. Yeah, yeah, it's well, that it's kind of like Mount Vesuvius. Um, maybe we'll touch on that later. Yeah, there's a there's a mouse or a rat with a cannon, but it's a cigarette. The uh, lady from God knows I'm good being consoled by Lindsay Kemp, possibly with a buzz cut. Um, there's a little painter on the. Yeah, you know what? We should maybe tweet this picture out. We are we are on Twitter um, at Bowie Podcast. Um, we've had some great uh, some great engagement uh, with some of our Twitter followers. It's been a, it's been fun kind of having some back and forth. Uh, so yeah, give us a give us a follow at Bowie Podcast. Uh, we'll be kind of tweeting things out in the weeks between or in the days between episodes, just to kind of keep things up during in between episodes. Uh, but yeah, there's back to this back cover. There's there's a lot of like little like like dead bodies or something underneath. It's just chaos. This back cover. It, it's really, really neat. It should, you know, it should have been the front cover. There's also like the, the U S version was like a different title or something, right? They called it like man of words, man of music or something. Man of wor- music. Yeah, that's right. I, I, I don't like making excuses for Bowie's career, not taking off. Uh, but I feel like the label weren't doing him ever, any favors here because Man of words, man of music. That that sounds like something that would be left in like the folk section bargain bin. Mm-hmm. You know? It doesn't sound like the type of record that would have something as vicious as like Signet Committee on it. You'd expect something more of like, I don't know, that guy nobody cares to remember. Uh, the, the fact that I'm struggling to think of a name of an artist to compare it to is kind of proving my point. A forgettable. Yeah, very one. forgettable. Yeah. Uh, a very boring title. Yeah. A very boring side coming up. <laughs> not well, I mean, I mean, not we'll, not really, I, but we'll, I mean, let's uh, we'll drop the needle and we'll get into it. Okay. Uh, so Janine. Side B kicks off with Janine. Um, so, I think this is a good tempo to start the side with because this album doesn't have many up tempo songs, right? It feels like it was needed. It's not the greatest song, but it does feel like it was needed. Uh, just in terms of sequencing, a little a little pick-me-up. Yeah. Yeah, this song is about, uh, it's not about a lover of his, but it's it's about uh, his friend, George Underwood's girlfriend, Janine. Who? Who was, did he, did, yeah. he not des- did he not design the back cover that we were just talking about? Oh, uh, hang on. Let me just check. I'm pretty sure he did. Let me see here. If he didn't design this back cover, he he designed is, a lot. He he designed lot. he designed Bowie's eyes. Um, he he was the one who <laughs> pun- <laughs> he's the one who punched Bowie. Uh, yeah. it was over a girl. I don't know if it was Janine or not, but he's it, the one. I don't think it was Janine, but yeah, they were fighting over the same. Apparently, Bowie really deserved it, but it wound up working out for both of them. He got to knock David out for being a prick, and David got these really cool eyes. Yeah, uh, the name of the back cover photo is the depth of the circle uh not to be confused with width the of, width the circle. of a circle uh but yeah back cover by george underwood so he did maybe that was his uh his way of paying back bowie for as he said oh no oh gosh i've maimed him what have i done apparently so bowie had maybe this is the time to talk about his eye uh he does he wasn't born with two different colored eyes his eyes aren't actually two different colors it's just his 
his is it his left eye the pupil is permanently dilated he had like two or three surgeries just to keep him from going blind in that eye uh after he was punched by his friend uh as you said deservingly deservedly and deservingly how the hell do you say that uh, anyway deservedly deservedly i said it right the first that's time. our mis our mispronounced word of the day sponsored right. by uh white claw yeah <laughs> yeah uh so that's why it appears that his eyes are two different colors um but they're both blue or at least they look kind of blue um yeah that eye has ha- had a rough go later in the reality tour he took a lollipop off the eye that kind of <laughs> threw him off at a commission for a while yeah, so George Underwood uh, designing Bowie's face and back covers since the mid to late 60s. This is a weird song conceptually because uh, Bowie claims this song, and I quote, this is a bit hard to explain without sounding nasty. It was written about my old mate George and is about a girl he used to go out with. It's how I thought he should see her. And so there's there's lines like... Uh, you're too intense. I'll have to keep you in your place. And then George was quoted as saying, I couldn't figure out what David was trying to say with the song. I think he was trying to tell me something, but I still don't know what he never came out and said he didn't like my girlfriend or anything. He was always nice to her and she never upset him as far as I knew. So I don't know what, what's going on. Cause it sounds like he doesn't like Janine, but then apparently by all accounts he did. Uh- <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it could have just been, songwriting you know like loosely based on right i mean i don't could have just been he needed a name or i don't know like i don't quite understand what he was trying to say so i've chosen to just take janine for one for what it is a a fun little rocker i just enjoy it for its energy and its exuberance i'm able to enjoy it i'm able to enjoy it as a passive listener this is a mindless pick-me-up directly after signet committee where we had to be very active listeners. This is probably what the doctor ordered in terms of sequencing. Yeah. Uh, great little guitar riff. Uh, it's really cool. I, I like uh, the, there's a BBC version where Mick Ronson's on guitar and he plays it really well. Well, I'd mentioned on the, the last episode, which we definitely didn't record in the same session as this one, <laughs> that the backing band Bowie has on this album isn't the greatest. They're not terrible, but you know, they're tight enough. And it's not that this is a bad song or the guitar playing is bad, but I'm glad you mentioned the BBC version with Ronson because I think this is one in particular that could have been bolstered by Ronson. Mm-hmm. And that one, the BBC Absolutely. version isn't fantastic either in terms of guitar playing, but like maybe with some more designated studio time, I could see him coming up with something really, really good for this song. Yeah. I mean, although he didn't generally, uh, the bands that he was playing with didn't have much time, in particular the Spiders, to to come up with with stuff it was kind of like they rehearsed it once recorded it the second time if they needed a third take they would like that was kind of it um I, I read uh woody's book about a year ago and he said like they were so efficient that like he didn't have time to think he was just like i i gotta come up with something on the spot and that's what's going to be on the album and mm-hmm. luckily it just seemed to work out a lot but yeah, it yeah, like you were saying, it maybe could have used some of that magic. This one just to kind of give it a bit of a, just to give it something more. It's it's a it's kind of a forgettable rock song on a kind of forgettable. I'm not going to go that far. For a yeah. song that's like more music driven or more guitar driven, yeah. maybe could have used some 
some more technical polishing uh yeah. yeah, I mean, this is definitely one you could sneak onto like any classic rock party playlist and it'll keep everyone's feet moving. It's a totally fine and competent song, but yeah, just a song, you know, a, a decent little song. I've got one more little tidbit. Uh, this was going to be the B side of All the Mad Men, uh, which was proposed as a single, but it eventually was scrapped. Uh, but it's kind of interesting that he chose this to be the B-side of all the Mad Men because it kind of is maybe a precursor to him choosing older songs that maybe he liked a bit more that didn't get any recognition to be the B-side of, uh, of a new single, which he mm -hmm. did a lot later on in his career. But just kind of interesting. I mean, it wasn't that old of a song by the time all the Mad Men came out, but it was from a previous album. So I think they both liked it because uh, when I say them both, I mean him and Visconti. Visconti said, I think he may have said this was his favorite on the album. I could be wrong on that, but I've read that like Visconti really, really enjoyed okay. this one. Yeah. Cool. So, yeah. I mean, that could have been part of it too. They just both really, you know, liked it. I mean, especially for a single, you know, it's, yeah. it would, it, it would have been a, a decent pick. He's also okay. kind of doing a, a bit of a, uh, an Elvis on this one too. Uh, Janine. Yeah. Janine. Well, yeah. Did, didn't, yeah. Didn't he mention on uh, when he, whenever he referenced his first record, David would always say, I couldn't tell if I was Anthony Newley or Elvis Presley or where I was going on this one. He's definitely going Elvis. Yeah. <laughs> Funny thing. You mentioned Elvis in, is it the BBC recordings or it might've been on? No, is it? I just heard it recently. It might've been on either the recently released uh, width of a circle EP there, there's some some collection just recently came out where there's some live stuff from this era and the 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 radio guy sa says like oh this is from your album david bowie and you named your last one david bowie and then there's this one david bowie and he's like and what's the next one going to be elvis presley for <laughs> variety or something uh, he was very kind of cheeky about it but it was all in fun but it was just he, kind of a funny thing he also did uh the Beatles on this one too, uh, on the Mercury recording, it turns into Hey Jude at the end. I don't know if I've heard that. Maybe we'll, we'll play the clip. He, he does uh, the end of the song or I can't remember. It's a segment of the song, but anyway, he goes, he does the nah, 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 but then it's not Hey Jude. It's Janine. Oh, I got a Wow. Yeah. That's yeah. That's we'll, uh we'll splice it in. Yeah, so, so Elvis, Beatles, Bowie, I, I don't know who the song's by, but it's a, it's a decent little song, a good song to kickstart a side off with. And I think we're going on to the next one. An Occasional Dream. Uh, another one about Hermione, apparently. Uh, I, I don't really listen to this one very much. Um, kind of a, it's, it's like a dream pop kind of song. That's, that's what I, it's very 60s sounding kind of spacey kind of not good yeah i don't know about you but by the time we reach an occasional dream i catch myself drifting away and listening to this record a bit more passively this is the point of the album where i'm like oh yeah these are just a bunch of passable folk songs this is why this album isn't considered a classic 
these songs are on it and they aren't bad, you know, but, but not being bad isn't a memorable takeaway from a Bowie song. Right. Right. Yeah. For another <laughs> artist or band, this album is like, it's probably top half or, or, or near the top. Right. But yeah, not bad is, yeah, that's not a, that not bad is on the Bowie curve is pretty low. You know what I mean? Or, or even just good is, is low on the Bowie curve. And that's what this song is. It's just okay. I guess it's like another version of, uh, like you said, it's another Hermione song. It's, it's kind of like another version of Letter to Hermione, but it, this one just has a bit more of a charm. I guess that's what's neat about it. It's Bowie being sweet and gentle. He isn't sweet often. We touched on it in the last episode. He usually leans more on the darker, grotesque side. So maybe that's a, a, a very interesting part of this song is that you don't really hear him doing this sort of thing much later on funny that we're kind of trashing the song a little bit but i was this is the song that i had in my head because we've been listening to this album both of us quite a bit you know in the week leading up to filming Mm -hmm. these these episodes and this is the one that i was kind of whistling that i I thought it was just this morning i thought oh that's weird that this is the one that's in my head well, I get I, like it, it isn't like a t- like we're trashing it relative to the rest of Bowie's career. It, it's an okay song, and that I'm sure you're whistling probably the recorder part, right? Yeah, I was. I think yeah. that's Visconti playing that. Yeah, that's a fun little. I mean, it, it's a fun little happy, charming song, but I don't know. It like I said, what, when I was listening to this record in preparation for the episode, I was really into the first side. You know, even Letter to Hermione, which I don't think is that great. You know, it's such an intimate song that it pulled me in. Once we get to this side, I, I started to, it became a bit more of a chore to get through it. Uh, and once again, I don't want to make, make it sound like I'm trashing these songs. I, I think they're all good songs, but like I said, just not great songs. For, for me, the next song is the highlight of the album, though. Uh, Wild Eye Boy from Free Cloud is, Ooh, wow. I think I think it's my favorite song from the album. One of, it's actually a top Bowie song for me. I didn't um, know that. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. We're to start with this one. What's well, a so, lot more ambitious than yeah the, uh, the last couple. This one is it's another kind of dark song. It reminds me kind of of an old Universal Studios kind of creature feature era horror movie where you know the the town or the village is against somebody, and you know some supernatural thing is fighting the town. And that's kind of what happens here with the wild eyed boy from free cloud, who is in love with the mountain and the village doesn't like the boy and they want to kill the boy. They've got, there's the hangman's coming for him and the, the cruel stuff. <laughs> yeah. And, and the, the mountain fights back and it's got like kind of, you know, Pompeii vibes to it. I, well, I'm glad you mentioned film because it is very, I don't even think like of a specific type of movie. I just think movies in general, when I play this song, you know, we have a protagonist, the boy and the antagonist, the townspeople. And, you know, we, we crave revenge for protagonists in film, right? right? There's a big, there's a big turning point we all wait for and we get it on this song. Our expectations are quenched because unbeknownst to the villagers, as you mentioned, the kid has some sort of symbiotic supernatural relationship with the village mountain and it protects him and destroys the village. It's reduced to rubble. And then, you know, we're all satisfied because, you know, what the hell were you doing, 
you know, hanging this poor little kid, you got what was coming to you, you know? So it's, it's a very fulfilling ending for us. Yeah. Um, this one was originally recorded with Gus Dudgeon, um, uh, along with space oddity, but this, the one that we hear on the album version is, uh, Tony Visconti re-recorded it. And there's an interesting, so it was recorded with Bowie, um, on 12 string acoustic guitar. Uh, there was no rhythm section except for him. Uh, he sat in the middle of the studio with a, an orchestra around him and Mm -hmm. they did it in one take. Uh, there's an interesting, I'm going to just read this quote from Visconti on the recording of this song. Uh, so this is from, from Tony, uh, The setup was amazing. David David was sat right in the middle of the orchestra with his 12 string, and I was on a podium with an 11-page score I had written spread out on three or four music stands. Trident never recorded such a huge orchestra. David didn't sing live. He played acoustic guitar. He was the rhythm section. There were many delays getting the performance onto tape as Trident had just installed a new 16-track tape machine the night before and didn't know how to line it up as in tuning the engine of a car, but they just got it up to speed in the end. We managed to get one take done before 1 p.m., the end of the musician hire. To go overtime would have cost the equivalent of five to 6,000 pounds today, but it was a perfect take, it worked. So when I listen to this song, I, I, can, I just picture Bowie sitting on a stool, you know, with his, with his acoustic guitar, keeping the time uh, for this orchestra that, somehow pulls off this amazing arrangement I, I maybe they were fiddling around in the in, in the time it took them to get this machine working uh just their luck but to do this all in one take uh mm-hmm. i mean i mean yeah that's kind of the bowie way but it's just that visual of what the studio was like doing that it's, it's really really neat yeah and and the arrangement is is incredible i i don't know if i've heard or not recently anyway the the first version of this but it, I, i'm sure it, it doesn't hold a candle to to the visconti up version no it doesn't uh it, even though this isn't a highlight for me at least not uh, to the extent that it is for you it still accomplishes something that i think is very impressive and that's that this track reels you into its setting right david has a way with words and a way with sound that really helps you visualize what's being said we mentioned this on There is a Happy Land on his debut record. Uh, Space Oddity, the song, uh, would be another great example of this. Uh, you know, the Visconti arrangement taps into the mythical narrative of this song. It puts you in, I don't know, like a Chronicles of Narnia setting almost. Mm-hmm. And his lyrics paint a very vivid image. It's like a word painting. Uh, the Dylan influence on this record will always be mentioned because there's a lot of folky acoustic ballads. But an underrated connection to Dylan on a song like this for me is just the vivid imagery. Now, that was Dylan's perhaps main calling card, or at least in my opinion, it is. Yeah. You think think of a song like Mr. Tambourine Man, where we have all these. It's a song I was going to mention. As <laughs> a, be, yeah. We have all these very vi- vivid images just stacking on top of one another. That's very present here. Uh, you mentioned that one of those first lines. I can't remember it exactly. Uh, something about the village settles down undetected by the stars and the hangman plays the mandolin before he goes to sleep. He has such a way with setting, which I guess that's the the theatrical side of him coming out. 
Yeah. Yeah. This well, is... and, and, and this is also a song that was like meant for the stage because it started there, right? It was originally written and performed for one of his MyMax, I think the, the year prior. Okay. I didn't know that. That's cool. Yeah. So it kind of makes sense that it becomes like this big production because it most likely was right. Right. And, and he does take it to the stage on the, the Ziggy tour, right? It's on the, the Ziggy live soundtrack album. It's part of like a little medley there with all yeah, the young dudes. Yeah. And... I, I absolutely love that. Uh, it's, yeah, it's part of the motion picture. I, that's, that was actually the first time I heard the song uh, and I liked it. And then that was my introduction to this song anyway. It's a really good version. You know, there, there's even more authority in his vocal performance on that version. He, he sounds a bit more confident or something. And, and I guess for... He's Ziggy the, Stardust now, so... Yeah, he, he's now an established act, uh, you know, performing in front of, like what you said, a 50-piece orchestra as an unestablished act was probably overwhelming. But by 1973 or whenever that album was recorded, uh, the Ziggy concert soundtrack album... He's already, he's a superstar, a superstar at that point. Right? The, the willies or whatever you want to call them are gone at that point. Yeah. Yes. This is another one of those songs like Signet Committee that I wanted to like more because it's really trying to be something special. He had crazy big aspirations in a lot of his songwriting. I think the concepts are all there, but he hasn't maybe become like the best performer or something yet. It's like you can you you can tell he's about to release you know his classic albums and he just just quite hasn't arrived at that yet at least for me I know you you see this a bit differently. Well, I can maybe see where this is like maybe a song from A Hard Day's Night versus versus a song on Rubber Soul or Revolver where you, you can yeah. see it's it's starting uh, but it's maybe a bit less a bit more basic of a track, uh, but the production maybe is just starting to get there. So like maybe like uh, and I love her versus a uh, I don't know, in my life or something. He's really shooting for like these storytelling epics, right? With like these Messiah esque characters, almost like the boy here is. So I'm not surprised then that he brought it back for the Ziggy tour because, you know, Ziggy is obviously a right. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know. He's definitely got really high ambitions, and you know that that's something that's gonna lead to to just undeniable greatness uh, sooner rather than later. I think by this one being a bit more stripped down than some of, I, I think it it creates a lot of space and a lot of room for that orchestra to to really shine. Um, so the strings towards the end that kind of come wailing in uh, th that really stands out. It's very, like you said, it's, yeah, it's very theatrical. And the magic and the stare of the wild-eyed boy said, stop the cloud, they won't think to cut me down. Cottages fell like a flame caught hell The tears on the face of the wise boy Came trembling down to the rumbling ground And the missionary mystic of peace love Stumbled back to cry among the clouds Yeah, it's, it, it's a top Bowie song for me. Um, yeah, we're going to have to agree to disagree on this one a little bit. 
it almost first, is first time first time actually we've we've been yeah. like it's funny i've been waiting for this moment because that first album we kind of were on the same page with with every song and and even up to this point on this album we'd been pretty much spot on so and i'm not saying that you don't like this song but mm-hmm. you know i feel a bit more strongly about mm-hmm. it it almost is like to space oddity what coming by my toys was for his debut just in terms of one that separates itself instrumentally from the rest for opposite reasons though coming by my toys was this acoustic jingle in a collection of brass band music hall songs wild eyed boy from free cloud is a dense recording mixed in with a collection of sort of like acoustic classic rock arrangements so especially on this side of the album too yeah so this is one that that kind of catches you off guard and it really sticks out in that way yeah it's like if you were to take letter to hermione off of side a and put it on side b and flip it with this this would fit in with that sound of side a a lot more you know what i mean yeah Yeah. like they could have been two separate eps or something and they would have sounded very similar because that's ultimately what kind of holds this album back a lot for me and i know for a lot of other people is it just say what you will about the first record but that one had more of like a sense of direction it was more cohesive this one's a bit more of a a bit more of a a mix and kind of an awkward bunch of songs at times so on my 2019 remix version i get conversation piece right here so this is where it comes in it doesn't get slapped on at the end no yeah they the sequencing was thought out by visconti i i guess so um I'm not going to talk about it uh, because it's not a part of, you know, the official album, but I I will say this much that, I mean, conversation piece is another kind of acoustic-y song. Uh, It definitely fits the, the, the sound of this side or, and and this album ultimately, I think maybe Visconti, if he likes that song, maybe he was even thinking, uh, you know, this, this album needs something right about here. So he put it in there. Uh, Mm -hmm. But yeah, um, I, you know what I wish he would have done? I wish he would have put it on and then maybe taken the next song off. God Knows I'm Good is the next official song. It might have been a sequencing thing once again, because this is, I mean, this isn't a rocker by any means, but it's more of a, a pick me up in, in an up-tempo one compared to conversation piece. It's, right. That Bo Diddley riff kind of makes a comeback again. Yeah. Not as, not as much as on the unwashed and somewhat slightly dazed, but. Not as much as Panic in Detroit either. It's also kind of like the last song where Bowie's pulling for the underdog, right? Is it the song's about an old lady caught stealing at the supermarket or what have you? Stealing she steaks. Slyly slips a tin of stewing steak. Is that the yeah. line? I can't quite remember. Yeah. I found that very interesting because I've worked with people where you know, like there wasn't a lot of empathy for the poor. You, know, you catch someone stealing and your first reaction is obviously going to, to be to stop them. But, and if for some people, that's the entire point of their job. If you're in, you know, security or protective services or something, but you know, it was afterwards where they'd freak out a little and, you know, call the person a piece of shit and berate them and attack them sometimes. And I'd always kind of look at that, like chill the fuck out, man. Like it's a frail, probably jobless and homeless person. Like don't take it personally. You know, the company you're working for is still going to be rich at the end of the day. And this person most likely isn't right. Not, you know, we, not flying off the handle. Doesn't mean you condone it. Not, yeah. Yeah. 
you know, yeah. we, we don't know their story a lot of the time. We don't know their hardships. I mean, in some instances, sure, maybe it's somebody who's stealing by choice and not necessity, but probably not, right? Well, Bowie showed some scruples towards the situation here anyway. Um, I don't really have much. <laughs> so I, I wrote down for this one. All I have is God knows I'm good, dot, dot, dot. But this song isn't. Uh, I, I I don't really like it. Well, it, 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 it it's it's that God knows I'm good. It's a very weak chorus. Yeah. Does right? it like? It, it kind of sounds like it could have been on the first album, a little bit. Maybe the theme of it, like oh, an old lady stealing steaks. <laughs> I don't know. I, I guess there's a certain gentleness and an empathetic sentiment I can appreciate, but outside of that, this song is doing absolutely nothing for me. <laughs> yeah. Let's let's move right along. <laughs> to the conclusion or the album closer uh, memory of a free festival one final blast of energy which is so fitting because it, not just for this record but for the 60s this song almost seems like a farewell to the 60s it closes out the 60s yeah and it's it's you know it's the 70s are going to be a party is kind of what they're maybe saying mm -hmm. you're right it, it does kind of close out the 60s um yeah, so this was about uh, or written um, in retrospect to the uh, Beckenham Free Festival in August of 69, uh, which was, was I think it was put on by the, the arts lab that he was a part of, right? He was running that with, it was uh, Mary Finnegan. He moved in with her and uh, they, it kind of another opportunistic sexual relationship of his where he, he kind of just weaseled his way into her apartment it, she's he starts living with her and then eventually when she was gone is when he brings angie oh in, into their home yeah it, it's a kind of like a, a yoko a, cynthia thing where exactly she comes home and yoko's in her robe or whatever well that's exactly what happened to mary she came home and angie was just there and angie was i guess you know bowie kind of didn't tell her the whole story angie Caesar and goes, Oh, there you are. I'm so glad to meet you. David's told me so much about you. And she's like, what is going on? <laughs> but, but it's funny because uh, Mary didn't flip out or get mad. She went, Angie was just so charming that she kind of just accepted it. Uh, she's obviously pissed off at David, but right. You know? <laughs> so yeah, this is uh so Bowie performed at this festival. Um, there's, there's some photos of him that are commonly circulated where he's got long hair. He's got an acoustic guitar. He's up on stage with people all around him. Um, he said later on uh, in actually in 2002, he said he was in a bad mood at this festival and, and kind of left it early. He was, he was mad. He felt that it wasn't the spirit of the festival wasn't going the way that he kind of thought or had hoped. Well, he, cause this song too is also, and it's almost like signet committee, but it's a bit more diplomatic, but it, he is really looking back at the hippie movement. Uh, it's very celebratory on the surface, but it, it kind of is a critique of the movement, right? He's, which is, he kind of did that a lot, uh, especially during this time. He did say though, that he was happy. Uh, he said he must've turned it around quickly though, because he does depict it in a bit of a happier way uh, than maybe he remembers experiencing the festival. Um, he, he said he was happy by the time he wrote the song. There's lines on here. Like it was God's land. It was ragged and naive. It was heaven. Right. So he's kind of critiquing it, but then also, you know, 
he's also happy about it. You know, he, he's looking back at it with a, a great deal of sentimental joy, but is ultimately closing the chapter is how right. I sort of interpreted it. And, yeah, and that's a good the, take. And for the greater good, because as we mentioned on when we were discussing Signet Committee on the previous episode, the, the hippie movement started with good intentions, but it, it sort of would become very naive and, and in some cases very harmful. Uh, there's the other line in the song where he says, we claimed the very source of joy ran through. It didn't, but it seemed that way. So yeah, what, what he's saying here, or at least what he's saying to me was, you know, that that was fun. And not even just this specific festival, but the tail end of the 60s in general. We had a blast. You know, the, the flower children were passing joints around and just frittering away. But your ideals are getting a bit silly, so it's coming to an end. You know, that was fun, but it's time to get serious. Uh, this song can kind of be broken up into two parts, I guess. There's the beginning part, which is where he's kind of describing the festival. Um, I, you know what I kind of see it as is it's the kids from there is a happy land are all grown up. They're now adolescent and they're, you know, they, he kind of describes like what was going on. And it, it's like, maybe it's the same kids, you know, a decade later. I love all these connections you're making between songs. Uh, you had <laughs> one last, uh, in the last episode, it was a little bombardier is the, is the, the man in there is a happy land. Yeah. Uh, it all comes back to there is a happy land. Yeah. That's funny. We're, <laughs> I'm going to keep trying to connect every song to that. You got to re- rename the podcast to there is a happy land. <laughs> and then the second part of the song is just like the kind of, as we mentioned earlier with Hey Jude, it's kind of a Hey Jude esque. Let's just v- very, yeah. very much. So a Hey, a Hey Jude ending. Yeah. Mark, Mark Boland sings. Uh, he's one of the voices in that. Um, on the and, second version or this version? Uh, on the second, like the second half of this song. Oh, he, he's actually singing on like on the album. Yeah. So I read uh, Mark Boland sings. Visconti got like two or three people to sing it over and over again, like single tracked, mm-hmm. put them yeah. all together. And then it sounded like a whole bunch of, okay, yeah. they didn't bring in, you know, like 50 people or whatever to sing. They, they just, just overdubbed it a million times. Yeah. And it sound like a, yeah. Okay. I, I, I like the song. I, I put, I, I when I make Bowie playlists, I, I often, there's, I, I don't know where I found it, but some compilation or some, some release has just the second side or the second half of it. I, yeah. Was it, yeah, it was it was cut, and I put that on playlists a lot just because it's a kind of a fun song. Um, the first half is a bit more of a of a listen to this as opposed to the second half is a mm-hmm. you can put this on. So yeah, well, I think that's why they made it a single. The label really encouraged him to like get to the the sun machine is coming down, and we're gonna have a party part sooner. <laughs> yeah, was kind of what they told me because that. that's the part that is, that's the refrain. It's the Hey Jude. I mean, Hey Jude was a smash hit and this is, you know, very similar. It's, I, I, this is definitely, I I love this song. This is one of my favorites on the album. Uh, And, you know, like I said, it's kind of like Signet Committee, but on that one, he's kind of more just attacking leaders, you know, ones who are channeling the hippie movement in, in bad faith. This is more of like a critique of the ideology itself. And it isn't a complete and total damnation of it, right? There's not as much animosity here. He's looking back, like we mentioned, a little more sentimentally, but with a clear sense of finality. And that's pretty remarkable because it's pretty much prophetic, right? Like 
Altamont comes along a few months later and effectively ends the youth counterculture. And ends the idea of a free festival being a good idea. Pretty much proves his point. Like, you think you may be taking things a little too far with who you've got working, security, and and that sort of thing. So Totally unrelated to Bowie. We should do an episode on Altamont. Or maybe not, but God, we could do a podcast on Altamont. Altamont, yeah just hour by hour breaking down each event that happened. If you, if if listeners, if you haven't um, experienced Altamont on or the video, it's called uh, gimme. Is it the gimme shelter? Gimme shelter. That's the name of the the film. Yeah. Was it the two directors or the filmmakers that did, they also did the, the Beatles first U S visit video. Uh, The it's like a documentary of few live shows, shows them getting ready for the Ed Sullivan performances. And oh, uh, no. the train to Washington before that, uh, before that show. No way. I'm, I'm just pulling up their filmography here. And they also did cut piece. Yoko Ono, 1965. That's oh, crazy. Wow. They worked with the Beatles in 64 and Yoko in 65 before her, before her and John even met, met. in 66. Right. That's crazy. And wow. Cut piece is a fantastic concept. That's like, she would like a, it was like kind of like a way of like punking perverts. She would give them like scissors to like cut off her clothes, but she had like 800 shirts on or something. So they never got <laughs> to see. Yeah. It's incredible. So oh, that's awesome. I didn't realize they, they filmed that. That's wow. We are Yoko fans, by the way. Oh yeah. We're, we're, we're Beatles freaks and Yoko fans. So mm-hmm. eat it. Yoko is the most overhated person on planet earth. And I don't even think it's close. Yeah. And so wrongfully so um we won't we won't get into this the boys were gonna break up anyway you know yeah um, yeah yeah, we don't have to get there's there's racial undertones and sexist undertones that go into that that i don't want to uh it should be criminal so unless you have anything else to add um on memory of a free festival i guess the one last thing that i was the last i played the album one more time right before we we shot this and uh the last thing that came to my mind was, you know, that, that cheap organ, it sounds like a Fisher price organ Bowie's playing at the beginning. Yeah. I wonder if that's almost intentional. The fact that it's so cheap sounding, you know, here's a cheesy organ for what I think is turning into a cheesy group of people that need oh, to yeah. grow up, you know, cause I don't see why he would use that, you know, unless he was trying to get at something, unless he was trying to pair it with the concept of his song. I don't know if that's ever been confirmed, but it's just a, something that I just thought of on my last spin. My last I would go around. I wouldn't put it past Bowie. So as we wrap up the album, we want to take some time to read out some of the responses that uh, we got online through our at uh, Bowie podcast, Twitter page. I, I'm new to Twitter. This is my first time <laughs> on Twitter. Uh, Johnny is definitely more. He's better at Twitter than I am, uh, but we're both kind of handling it um, at the same time. Um, but yeah, we've had some great, uh, what we plan on doing is trying to get some of your takes on the albums uh, as we record these episodes. So we're just going to read out a few here. I'll start with uh, Elston Gunn the Fourth, um, who's actually a, a good friend of, of mine uh, and Johnny's. He said at, at first, he said, uh, it's, it's the one album I've never done a deep listen to. Um, a, a few hours later, 
the the tweet says listen to it um unwashed and somewhat slightly dazed stood out not so much lyrics wise but for its groove it's like the missing link between late era donovan and t-rex um that last part is yeah it's the missing link between yeah yeah like what do you call t-rex like and it's like glam rock meets and i guess t-rex was a folk a freak folk group before they became a glam rock group it's kind of like psychedelic folk psych folk if you have to maybe boil it down to one that might be it yeah donovan obviously being uh, you know more of a traditional folk artist that's a great uh that's a great comparison i really like that yeah and the the groove is, is incredible it's funny because he said he didn't like this one lyrically and i kind of get where he's coming from because it it's not complex like a signet committee but it's ferocious right so that that's the main selling point for me honestly are those lyrics but i i also totally get where he's coming from because some of them are just pretty silly i mean there's he's talking about his he's got eyes on the back of his head that are electric tomatoes yeah (laughs) some of them are pretty weak but you know what honestly it 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 doesn't uh the fact that he delivers it in such a ferocious way is enough for it to sort of overtake uh some of the the sluggish lyrics for me anyway i love the sequencing of those tweets too that's exactly what we aim to do it's i the first tweet is i that's the one album i've never done a deep dive on and then a few hours later it was okay i've, I've done my work it's perfect it's like that's what that's exactly what we're we're hoping for there was a really interesting one from uh chris tyra at chris tyra one tyra taylor fall chris tyra one yeah she said i mean aside from space oddity which is great i feel like everybody came into this with well we're not going to say space oddity we're going to say our other favorite song right yeah she mentioned an occasional dream and she said it's haunting isn't it it is for me which is kind of incredible because it's not haunting at all to me but i guess that's the the greatness of Bowie is how many different interpretations you can have of a song. To me, I think I'd mentioned when we talked about it, that it was like the most charming song he'd ever done, but she sees it as haunting. Maybe it's the recorder that she kind of gets eerie vibes from. Uh, We might have to ask her specifically what it was, but I thought that was fascinating because I had a complete different takeaway from that song. So to try to look at it from that angle, maybe like I referred to it as kind of like a dream poppy kind of sounding song. Maybe this is a song that could have been played like during the strangers where they put on like a really happy kind of song, but then you're killing to it in the back. I don't know. Like maybe there's a lot of outside, um, you know, variables that have to lead to that in order to make it haunting. But I could see it being a little bit eerie if you're looking at it from a different angle, maybe, but yeah, but overall this, I find a lot of songs on this haunt on this album haunting this one, maybe not the most. I like, this is a song that you'd put on like your breakup playlist, you know, not a, uh, but some people, they maybe put it on their, uh, the strangers playlist. Like you said, when they, when they're, when they're up to no good. (laughs) Okay. So uh, let's see, what else do we have here? So Tony day, uh, we're just going to refer to this one as Tony day. Uh, good morning from VLC. For me, uh, hello. Yeah, we've got listeners in Spain. That's awesome. Memory of a Free Festival has their favorite. Stunning piece of writing. But it sometimes gets outed by Wild Eyed Boy from Free Cloud. I'm only human after all. 
uh, smiley face and peace. Yeah. Uh, there's another one for wild eyed boy from free cloud. I'm with you on that one. Uh, that's definitely my favorite on the album. Memory of a free festival is another, that's probably my, Oh, I'm not going to say that's, I like it more than space oddity, but I think wild eyed boy from free cloud is my favorite, even ahead of space oddity. Then space oddity would be number two. Then probably free festival would be three. Yeah. It'd be up there with it. Maybe signet committee. He, he also then mentioned signet committee next. Uh, he said he, he is very fascinated by the, the kick out the jams line because that's a, a nod to the MC five at that time in the UK. He said, it's pretty special to me. I think that's interesting because MC five, like them and the stooges are like the quintessential proto punk groups. And I had referenced a couple of times where I saw Bowie being like a little proto punky on this record. So I do agree. That is a very, a very neat connection uh, between Signet Committee and, and the MC5. Uh, one more for Signet Committee, uh, Justin Waterman. Um, Justin Waterman is our cousin, uh, by the way. He had Water- a hand in our, well, he didn't design our logo, but if you, you're looking at our logo, which I'm sure you are, uh, if you're listening to this, because it's uh, the podcast show, the, the big logo, you'll notice that our, our text is kind of like a Bowie-esque text and we didn't use a color uh, to fill it in, we use like a picture fill. That picture is actually a painting of his. And he does a lot of really great visual art stuff. And, and if you're into that sort of thing, which if you're into David Bowie, I have to imagine you are, you should uh, definitely give him a follow at Waterman Art. And he, he's also on Facebook and that sort of thing. I'm not on Facebook. I don't remember what his page is, but type in his name if you're looking for some cool, a, a lot of Bowie inspired and Bowie adjacent stuff. Definitely go and check him out. Yeah, we mentioned our early influences on Bowie in the first episode, and uh, he was like he. We should have mentioned him too. Uh, we we grew up very close uh, with with most of our cousins, but yeah, Justin and uh, and us were like he introduced us to probably some Bowie stuff that our dad kind of filled the gaps for us. I would say he's the Bowie guy. He is you know? the Bowie yeah. guy. Yeah. He said Signet Committee lyrics are wise beyond his years. They are still relevant. And I think that's exactly what we said when we talked about that song. We'd mentioned how it was pretty incredible that he'd written that at whatever age he was, early 20s. And the fact that they're ambiguous make them still relevant today. I mean, I'm sure there's people have probably listened to Signet Committee and taken it in a thousand different ways. And then our last one comes from at Bowie's Beck oddity. He says, although our event ends with the track memory of a free festival, I have a soft spot for both signet committee and wild eyed boy from free cloud. This album has been a favorite of mine since my childhood. I had an older brother who was a massive Bowie fan. My first Bowie connection was so similar kind of backstory to both of us. Yeah. It seems like, uh, a lot of the same songs are popping up as our, as favorites um, with the exception of uh, an occasional dream, which mm-hmm. is why I'm really glad that it was mentioned because that's the beauty Be- of Bowie. Because she also saw that song in a totally different light. So that's the maybe, beauty of, that's the beauty yeah. of art in general is maybe that's why we, we didn't get it is because we're not looking at it through the lens that she was. So yeah. that, that that's incredible. I mean, it really is. Yeah. So thanks to, uh, to this little community we've got uh, of of Bowie fans uh, for reaching out and sending us your thoughts. Uh, we look forward to hearing from you more as we continue our 
fantastic voyage through David Bowie's career. Uh, so final thoughts on Space Oddity. I guess he's still trying to find his voice. You know, he hasn't quite landed on an identity. The last record, I'd argue, is much more cohesive. We've talked at length about how it's maybe a bit sillier, but he had a sound and a style, a distinct sound and a distinct style. Here, his sound is a lot more scattered. It's a a hodgepodge of folk, Bo Diddley, space novelty, mystical orchestra, you know, all kinds of different sounds. But I will say this. This record is definitely a coming out party for him as a great lyricist. Most of my gripes with this record are, you know, like I said, it's lack of direction and that the music isn't quite up to par. I think Visconti has even admitted that he still didn't quite know how to produce by the time they'd gotten to this album. And so many people in the recording process are a little novice, even down to the backing band. We'd mentioned that David will surround himself with better talent shortly after it's not like the music on this record is terrible or anything, you know, but the, the, the lyrics really shine above the music. He, he's really shooting for some very epic stories on this one. And a lot of the songs are very ambitious. Yeah. I, I pretty much would echo most of what you just said. Uh, it's not going to be the first album that I put on. Uh, if somebody's asking me why you like Bowie um, so much, it's, it's just missing a little something I can't quite pinpoint. Uh, maybe you, maybe you kind of said it. I would almost like it more. And I find myself guilty of this, even though I, I try hard not to, if it was by somebody other than David Bowie, I might like it more, but I I'm guilty of holding it up to the rest of his career. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, if it was by somebody else, I probably wouldn't listen to it as much the same way that I'll rewatch the same, you know, Friday the 13th part seven, because it's a Friday the 13th movie, not just some other shitty eighties horror movie. When it's a part of something bigger, you kind of revisit things more and you kind of like it more as you go. I think you hit the nail on the head when you mentioned the Bowie standard, because I think I'm also a bit unfair to this record because I, I don't adore it or hold a, a special place in my heart for it like I do the first one. You know, that one is more of a happy-go-lucky escapist sort of thing. So I never really berate it. This one, though, because it's meant to be taken more seriously, I take it more seriously. I, I tend to try holding it to the same standard of his great albums and it falls flat. But like you mentioned, that's such a high standard. This on its own is still a pretty solid album. There aren't any real duds or songs that i'd say are downright pathetic i think it's a better album than his first one but because of all those weird caveats i just outlined i find that i revisit this one less it's almost an album that i can't maybe find the right time to put it on as much as others you know if you're if you're in like a relaxed mood you might put on black stars uh something a bit more mellow or like outside. If you're having a party, you're going to put on let's dance or something from the glam rock era or young Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, th- there's kind of like, you know, the list goes on this well, one. It's just, I, I don't, I, I don't reach for it very often. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not. And, and I can't even despite going through it like quite a bit these last two weeks, I probably won't revisit this one for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it'll be a few months before I, I put it back on kind of thing, which <laughs> sounds kind of like, what do you mean? You don't listen to this one very much, but it, 
I mean, it, it might be a bit longer than that, but you get what I'm saying. I, I guess to, to put a, a more of a positive spin on it, it, it is the most intimate and vulnerable I think we'll ever see him on a record. So it was fun to revisit this album because I don't consider it to be one of his greatest, but it still has something unique and interesting about it that still makes it worth your time. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I'm also glad I was able to revisit it because, like you said, I don't play it that often. So I found some little things that had maybe gone undetected in the past. Uh, but ultimately, I am glad to get over this record. As solid as it is, I, I really am looking forward to getting on with what I consider, and I'm certainly not alone on this, uh, which what I think is probably like the best run of albums ever. You know, from a sheer quantity standpoint, there's not much like the the era that we're about to dive into yeah so before we dive into uh the what we're gonna call just the spiders era of bowie's career we're gonna pause and look back at the 60s in a best of sort of episode where we we cover these two albums and some of the songs that kind of slip between the cracks uh that weren't released uh, officially on the albums, but were maybe singles or unreleased stuff. Uh, we're going to come up with a playlist that we think defines this era of Bowie. Yeah, anything you want to add on on that? No, I, I just can't wait to do that because I think that's going to be a lot of fun. You know, we'd mentioned already that you mentioned conversation piece, you know, a great song that didn't make it on this record. And like you said, there's a, there's a lot of tracks that I, I won't name too many because, you know, we want to keep it somewhat of a, of a secret and a surprise, but I, I'm really looking forward to doing that because there are a lot of songs that are, are worthy of, of conversation and dissection. And uh, we'll be doing that on the next week's episode next week's. Yeah. We, we record these, we record the album in a day and we release them in, you know, two weeks apart. Uh, that's our big, we can't That's give our, that away. That's we, our, <laughs> we, well, we, we work every, every week on this. <laughs> so yeah, it'll be, I'm looking forward to recording that episode. Uh, it'll be something different and uh, we hope you join us for that. We hope that you've lasted this long through this episode. Um, yeah. Thanks for listening. Uh, we'll catch you next time. Mm-hmm.